This interview series is brought to you by the IIEA as part of our Global Europe project. Hello, my name is Leanne Digny and I'm a researcher at the Institute of International and European Affairs, the IIEA here in Dublin. I'm delighted to be hosting an interview today as part of the IIEA's Global Europe project, supported by the Department of Foreign Affairs. This project aims to address, analyze and communicate to the wider public the EU's role in the world and Ireland's role in the multilateral order. I'm very pleased to be joined today by the UN Special Rapporteur on Trafficking in Persons, especially in Women and Children, Siobhan Malali, who has kindly agreed to share her insights into the role and her reflections on the major challenges that exist in this area today. So Siobhan, welcome and thank you very much for joining me today. By way of introduction, could you briefly just explain to us what your role and responsibilities are as the UN Special Rapporteur on Trafficking in Persons? Well, uh, the UN Special Rapporteur mandate is part of the special procedures of the UN system. So I am an independent expert and uh, appointed by the UN Human Rights Council, which is an intergovernmental body. And I report to the Human Rights Council and also to the UN General Assembly. And that reporting process is used to highlight particular thematic priorities to try to state and develop international law on the area and to highlight particular areas where further international action is needed. I also receive and consider communications um, from individuals, often from lawyers or families of victims, highlighting human rights violations or pending human rights violations, urgent situations, um, and requesting interventions. And those can be in the form of an urgent appeal or an allegation letter to the government requesting further information and action. Or we can also intervene through commentary on legislation and policy to try to strengthen the human rights framework um, and to bring it into compliance with international law. So applying the, the range of international human rights and UN standards with regards to the rights of trafficked persons and the obligations of states to prevent trafficking and protect um, victims of trafficking. The other way in which, uh, as the special rapporteur, I engage can be through submissions to courts in domestic court proceedings. Um, so I'm involved, for example, at the moment in an application to the European Court of Human Rights with regard to the UK-Rwanda asylum partnership and its potential impact on victims of trafficking and also have been involved in domestic legal proceedings on that in the UK. Um, we also intervene, um, and as Special Rapporteur in Trafficking in Persons, I also engage with a range of policy mechanisms and processes within the UN system and related to the UN system. So, for example, um, with the Vienna-based UN bodies, um, I engage on the Palermo Protocol on Trafficking in Persons, on their working groups, to try to inform developments and policy discussions in relation to climate change. Because I had a thematic report specifically looking at the impact of climate displacement and climate disasters on risks of trafficking in persons, uh, I engage also with the climate discussions and conference of the parties 
um, in relation to the upcoming COP, for example, um, in the United Arab Emirates and elsewhere, um, for example, with the European Union on human rights, due diligence and environmental due diligence with ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations and with the inter-American inter human rights system also to look at questions around trafficking in the migration context uh, and also in conflict settings. And we try also to engage in a priority for me is to try to engage with the African Union and the African human rights systems um, to highlight specific risks of trafficking in persons within the region. So it's those are the areas of work and, and, and modalities of work, if you like. Um, and there are always requests on an ongoing basis to to engage further as it is a, a global mandate. Yeah, sure. Um, so it seems like trafficking in person it is certainly on the increase in many parts of the world with many people, uh, you know, many of those being trafficked for the purpose of forced labor. Would your mandate also cover modern slavery or, or do you touch on that at all? Uh, the mandate covers all forms of trafficking in persons. Um, so trafficking in persons for the purpose of forced labor, labor exploitation, contemporary forms of slavery and servitude is a core area of work. So that comes within my mandate, as well as other forms of trafficking, such as exploitation and criminal activities, recruitment and use of children in armed conflict, forced recruitment, uh, forcible transfers of children, illegal adoptions, sexual exploitation. So absolutely forced labor, labor exploitation. This is a, a core area of work. I've been involved in uh, several communications um, on, the, on the issue. And in fact, the recent resolution just adopted yesterday by the Human Rights Council um, focuses on migrant workers in the agriculture sector and the particular risks of labour exploitation for seasonal and migrant workers and for rural women workers as well. So that's a key area of work. We've published several communications with regard to domestic workers in the Gulf region, for example, um, with regard to migrant workers in other countries as well who are at risk, serious risk of um, trafficking for purposes of forced labour. So it's a core area of work. And could I just ask, um, what have the main priorities been for your your term and have those priorities been achieved? Well, the priority areas of work have been to look at trafficking in the migration context. Um, they're focusing in particular on the rights of migrant workers. I'm particularly interested in the gender dimensions, looking at migrant domestic workers in particular. Um, and also looking at uh, trafficking risks faced by refugees and asylum seekers and gaps in protection. Um, and there I've just presented a report to the Human Rights Council uh, and worked very closely with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and the anti-trafficking task team um, within UNHCR uh, to really try to strengthen the work within protection clusters on the ground in the field on prevention of trafficking and protection of those who may be at risk. Um, uh, there is the upcoming Global Refugee Forum in December, which will take place in Geneva. And a key element of that will be to progress uh, attention to the risks of trafficking faced by refugees and also the gaps in protection services, for example, for people traveling through the Sahel region or into Libya, 
um, who may be at serious risk of trafficking, their failures to provide safe accommodation, access to legal aid, medical assistance. So looking at all of those gaps in protection and also looking at how refugees in camps um, or settlement areas may be targeted by traffickers. In terms of what has been achieved, I think we've put that on the agenda. Um, I've also challenged governments who are trying to restrict access to asylum and international protection uh, and using a political rhetoric that this is a way of preventing trafficking. Uh, and my mandate and my work has been to highlight that this, in fact, will just push people into riskier and more dangerous journeys. Um, so what we need to see is expanded access to international protection, including resettlement, family reunification and safe orderly migration routes. So I think we've uh, had some success in challenging that um, in the court proceedings in the UK. For example, I was an intervener at the Court of Appeal in relation to the UK-Rwanda asylum partnership. Um, and there was a, a limited success there um, in terms of highlighting particular risks for victims of trafficking who could be transferred uh, to Rwanda under that partnership. Um, there's more work to be done um, and we're continuing to work on that. Other priority areas have been, um, as I mentioned already, to look at the links between climate change and disasters and displacement, um, loss of livelihoods, gaps in social protection and the consequent risks of increases in trafficking in persons arising from that. Um, and that's been documented, for example, in Bangladesh in a number of case studies. And we highlighted that in, in the work with the General Assembly and in partnership with other special procedures also. Uh, and we we need to continue to work on that um, to ensure that displacement and disasters are recognised as a creating increased risks. Um, a third area of work has been around accountability and effective investigations and access to justice for victims, particularly in conflict settings. So looking at the situation in Syria, for example, with regard to Iraq and Syria, with regards to uh, Yazidi women and girls, and more broadly looking at those in the camps in northeast Syria who may have been victims of trafficking, um, looking at the situation in Libya, where we recently saw the report of the fact-finding mission in Libya, highlighting trafficking as a form of enslavement and possible crimes against humanity being committed, um, and engaging also with officials within the International Criminal Court around investigation of trafficking within the scope of the Rome Statute uh, under crimes against humanity and under war crimes as a form of sexual slavery. Um, under crimes against humanity as enslavement, which is broader, can include, for example, forced labour, where it meets the other requirements of crimes against humanity. Um, so that is an ongoing piece of work and linked to that, I'll be presenting a report to the General Assembly on October 16th. Um, and we're looking also at how the, the failures in terms of ensuring accountability and access to justice for victims 
how that impacts on peace processes and can limit and undermine peace building processes, um, particularly where you see armed groups and those who may have been parties to a conflict um, in a post-conflict setting continue to engage in trafficking in persons, perhaps in complicity with or engaging with criminal networks or terrorist groups. Um, so trying to highlight those kinds of links. And I had a, a report specifically looking at the intersections of trafficking and terrorism. Um, some limited success, I would say, on that, in that, for example, on the proceedings in relation to Shamima Begum in the UK, um, my intervention there highlighted the need to question and review whether she may have been a victim of trafficking and if yes, what are the obligations of the state with regard to identification, assistance, protection and repatriation? Um, so again, highlighting that terrorist groups um, are often engaged in different forms of trafficking for purposes of forced marriage, domestic servitude, forced labour, sexual exploitation, uh, and that we need to look at the different ways in which they operate and to ensure protection of victims and, most importantly, prevention. Um, finally, I would just note a piece of work that we're just starting um, is working with the SRSG, Special Representative of the Secretary General on Children and Armed Conflict, uh, Virginia Gamba, um, and looking at how the what are referred to as the six grave violations against children uh, in armed conflict, how those overlap with risks of trafficking of children and trying to integrate um, reporting on child trafficking into the monitoring and reporting mechanisms on children in armed conflict uh, with the aim of enhancing prevention uh, in protection settings and conflict settings uh, and also trying to ensure accountability. And I think we've had a really important um, we've made really important progress there in putting that on the agenda uh, in linking the risks of trafficking of children in a conflict setting with the work of the uh, SRSG on children in armed conflict um, and getting that into reporting processes which then feed into the Security Council and to a wider range of UN actors. Um, the objective always being to enhance prevention. Thanks. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, you've really given us a, a very broad picture there of how it really is a, a wide mandate that you have. Um, I, I suppose another area then to, to just touch on, you know, research is showing that technology is very much being misused now by human traffickers. Could you maybe just explain the role that technology is playing in human trafficking and tell us how states can protect digital spaces from this kind of criminal abuse? Yeah, so te technologies are being used um, for purposes of trafficking, and this has been documented, for example, in the in relation to the outbreak of war in Ukraine, um, where the OSCE, for example, has tracked um, increasing searches uh, and targeting of Ukrainian refugees, in particular women, um, for purposes of sexual exploitation and recruitment. Um, it's also used widely, and we've seen this, trying to target domestic workers with deceptive job offers, uh, sometimes targeting young people with um, 
offers of education or scholarship or work, um, using various apps, um, using online social media um, to target and recruit um, people for what is presumed to be a job offer or an education opportunity, um, which then turns out to be a situation of exploitation, including of trafficking. So a whole range of technologies are used, uh, including targeting children. So to give an example, I would say on the country visit to Bangladesh, um, when I visited Cox's Bazaar, which is largest refugee camp in the world, um, there in our interviews, we met, for example, young girls who reported um, being receiving offers of marriage uh, from possible husbands in Malaysia and being recruited for purposes of child marriage. Um, and it's important to remember in relation to children, it's not as a matter of law, uh, it's not necessary to establish any kind of force or deception or coercion. Uh, so any question of consent is irrelevant. Um, but there you see technologies being used to target communities that may be particularly at risk because of their vulnerable situation. Um, so that happens all the time. We also see online sexual exploitation amounting to trafficking. Um, and one of the difficulties is in preventing that, in ensuring access to justice for victims, um, and also ensuring that there is the necessary capacity for effective investigations, for cross-border cooperation, um, for specialist investigations in this form of kind of cyber criminal activity. So many countries will have specialized units on cyber crime that are looking at technology facilitated trafficking, um, but they don't always have the resources to cooperate effectively across borders. Um, or to really reach those most at risk. Um, remember, you're, you're talking about people who are moving, for example, across the Sahel region, who may be without any kind of connection um, until they come into the hands of those who, who are exploiting them. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a difficult context, one that's rapidly moving, um, but there's a lot of attention been given to it by states, um, by Europol, Interpol and other international agencies, and also to some extent by tech companies. But I, I think they need to be doing an awful lot more to effectively prevent uh, technology being used by those engaged in trafficking. Yeah, sure. No, absolutely. Um, you've you've just mentioned there also your recent visit to to Bangladesh and it is a, you know a big part of your mandate that you are expected to conduct these fact finding country visits. Do you face challenges in securing these visits, and if so, what kind of challenges arise? Yes, the country visits are a really critically important part of the mandate, and it's also where you get to meet with government, as well as um, the UN country team, civil society, human rights defenders, um, victims and survivors of trafficking, um, and to really put into practice the recommendations that you want to see being applied. Um, 
So the country visits I've undertaken since I started my mandate were Tajikistan, uh, Bangladesh, including to Cox's Bazaar, uh, South Sudan, and most recently to Colombia. Um, those have all been hugely useful and important country visits, but there are difficulties in securing them. As you said, um, all I can do is request a country visit. The government has to accept that. Um, if the government says no, that's formally recorded. Um, so usually governments don't say no as such, um, but it can be difficult to get a formal response uh, and an agreement on dates. Um, for example, with regard to South Sudan, there hadn't been a visit of um, a special procedures mandate holder uh, since I think it was it was 2013 or 2012, but for more than a decade. Um, so that took a lot of negotiation and meetings to secure that. Yeah, absolutely. Um... So something else I wanted to talk to you about, I mean, you, you briefly mentioned access to justice and you've touched on, um, you know, people who are trafficked for the purpose of, of criminality. So that the non-punishment principle, it sets out that victims of trafficking should not be prosecuted or, you know, in, in any other way punished for unlawful acts that they commit as a consequence of their trafficking. And this is really a critical tool for uh, victim protection and, and human rights based criminal justice responses to human trafficking. What obligations do states have to adopt this principle and is it being adequately applied? On the non-punishment principle, it's an important principle of international law. And as you say, it goes to the heart of ensuring the human rights of victims of trafficking, um, particularly those who've been trafficked for exploitation and criminal activities. Um, so where you have a situation of forced criminality, um, and there uh, it's, I have argued that it is essential to the object and purpose of the Palermo Protocol and to human rights obligations arising under international human rights treaty law. Um, it's not set out in the Palermo Protocol as such itself. Um, it is stated in the OHCHR principles and guidelines. And then you find it in regional instruments, including the EU Anti-Trafficking Directive and the Council of Europe Anti-Trafficking Directive, for example. Um, the It raises complex questions of law and practice, um, but those are not unusual to this area, for example, um, around tracking whether or not the alleged criminal activity is a direct consequence of being trafficked. Um, what is the element of free will, if you like, of, of the person who's a victim of trafficking? Um, and there, there was a very important judgment from the European Court of Human Rights, AN and VCL versus the UK, um, which involved Vietnamese boys who were trafficked to the UK um, and found to be involved in cannabis cultivation. And they were eventually identified as victims of trafficking. Um, but the case went to the European Court of Human Rights because a decision was taken to progress with the prosecution in relation to the drugs offences. And at that time, I was a member of and president of the Council of Europe group of experts on action against trafficking 
a treaty monitoring body and we requested permission to intervene um, and did. And there was an important judgment of the court there which highlighted um, the non-punishment principle as also being linked to the right to a fair trial um, to ensure that all of the necessary evidence came before uh, trial proceedings. Um, in my mandate as Special Rapporteur in Trafficking, I also submitted an amicus intervention to the International Criminal Court uh, on a case, um, Prosecutor versus Dominic Ongwen, um, that related to uh, the situation in Uganda. Dominic Ongwen is a former child soldier. And as an amicus intervener, uh, I just commented specifically on the points that had been raised in relation to whether or not he may have been a victim of trafficking uh, as a child, uh, recruited and used in armed conflict, and what might be the consequences of that in terms of the, the charges brought against him, which related only to uh, offences committed as an adult. Um, so it raises questions around how does the non-punishment principle link with uh, the more traditional defense of duress, for example, um, and to what extent can you track the alleged offenses as being linked to an experience of being a victim of trafficking, in this case, in the ongoing case, as a child. Um, the other kind of controversial scenario where we see the non-punishment principle coming up um, and a discussion that I was involved with would be in relation to um, children and women recruited um, by ISIS, for example, um, now some of whom are detained in camps in northeast Syria, and the question of whether they may have been victims of trafficking. Um, if recruited as a child, as I said, there's no question of having to show deception or force. Uh, any kind of question around consent is irrelevant. Um, so they case that's most well known, but there are many others, is that of Shimima Begum, um, recruited at the age of 15, um, travelled uh, and uh, was married, had children um, who died. Um, and there are questions now as to whether or not she was a victim of trafficking, um, whether there have been effective investigations and what kind of obligations are there uh, for the UK government to repatriate her. So uh, I was involved in submissions in UK proceedings at the Special Immigration Appeals Commission. Um, and there they, the commission did say that uh, there was credible evidence um, that she may have been a victim of trafficking. So recognising that, that context. Um, but the non-punishment principle there uh, would... Um, would uh, bring to the fore the the argument that uh, she or others, uh, if they are identified as victims of trafficking, should not be punished for any offences um, committed as a direct consequence of being a victim of trafficking. But that remains, of course, um, contested. Yeah. yeah, no, sure. Um, well, thank you for those insights, Siobhan. I just have one final question. What have you found to be the most difficult and the most rewarding aspects of this role? Um, well, the difficulties are it's it's a global mandate. So you're trying to 
ensure reach and relevance to different parts of the world and different regions. Um, and in particular, it's been a priority for me to ensure that I am engaging as mandate holder and through the mandate uh, with communities uh, that are most affected by risks of trafficking and for whom there are serious gaps in protection, but may not have the resources or the capacity or the networks to be able to engage with the UN system. Uh, and in particular, in regions of Africa where you have large movements of people, uh, countries where that are hosting very high numbers of refugees, where there are ongoing situations of conflict um, or countries that are seriously impacted by climate change, South Sudan, for example, um, very seriously affected by climate change and flooding um, and the ongoing impact of conflict and now receiving more refugees from Sudan, um, but with limited capacity to be able to engage with a special procedures mandate holder. So it's trying to be proactive, um, to reach out to civil society actors, human rights defenders, UN country teams, um, government officials where they are open to that, to try to be useful um, and to bring the, the work of the mandate uh, to their service, if you like, to to try to have an impact. Um, but that is difficult. That's challenging with limited resources and trying to have that kind of global reach. And really, to be effective, you have to work in partnership with those on the ground um, to support them. But they are often in very difficult situations and are often in situations where they are at risk. Um, and that is very difficult, where you're working with lawyers, with human rights defenders, with victims and survivors, but you know that they may be at risk of reprisals from traffickers. And they may not receive the kind of protection that they should. Um, so trying to ensure that you are engaging in a way that is safe um, and doesn't do any harm and, and that is useful on the ground. I think that's, that's always difficult and a challenge. Um, the most rewarding aspect, I would say, is um, where you see even minor changes happening in terms of policy recommendations being taken up, being moved forward, um, either by governments at national level or within the UN system um, at, or at a regional level. Um, and I think you see that most clearly, I guess, in the country visit. So in the country visit to Colombia recently, um, we really had important discussions around ensuring that prevention of trafficking by armed groups, for example, um, former party, parties to the conflict, um, that that is built into peace building processes and is recognized as an important element of building a lasting, and as they say, total peace, um, and recognizing the need for greater attention and support to prevent trafficking by criminal networks, exploiting those who are migrating, for example, through Colombia or particular communities at risk, indigenous peoples, Afro-Colombians and Venezuelan refugees and migrants. So where you can put a spotlight on the need for more support, more resources, more attention 
as we did in Bangladesh and Cox's Bazaar in South Sudan. Um, that that's a rewarding aspect. Um, but you know that it it requires consistent and persistent work to to really bring about meaningful change. Yeah. No. Of course. Um, well, I'd just like to thank you once again for joining us today, Siobhan. And on behalf of the IIA, I'd really just like to commend you on all of the incredible work that you and your office have done and, and, and continue to do. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Bye bye. If you'd like to learn more about the Global Europe Project or listen back to other podcasts in the Global Europe podcast series, you can check out our website or social media. This interview series is brought to you by the IIEA as part of our Global Europe Project.